following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit for participation in this activity or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. Support for this activity is provided by independent educational grants from Amgen, Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Inc., Exact Sciences Corporation, Merck, Pfizer, Inc., and Sanofi Genzyme. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Cookson, Professor and Chairman at the University of Oklahoma, and I work at the Stevenson Cancer Center. Welcome to the Evolving Landscape of Advanced Prostate Cancer Treatment, a Guidelines and Case-Based Discussion. Today, we're going to discuss case number three, which is that of a patient with early androgen receptor therapy and chemotherapy. So I'm joined today by Dr. Kelly Stratton. Dr. Stratton is Associate Professor of Urologic Oncology at the University of Oklahoma and the Stevenson Cancer Center. His clinical interests include treatment of advanced prostate cancer in a multidisciplinary clinic, and he serves as the disease site chair for the urologic clinical trials as a member of the Prostate Cancer Committee and also is on the SUO Clinical Trials Consortium. Dr. Stratton, welcome, and uh, please uh, set the stage for this case after you do a brief introduction. Thank you. This is it's a great opportunity to discuss this case, early metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So our patient is a 65-year-old healthy gentleman who was sent to us after his urologist decided to retire. He had previously undergone a prostatectomy about nine years ago. At the time, he had Gleason 8 prostate cancer. His PSA pre-prostatectomy was 12. He had a lymph node dissection that was negative, but his margins were positive. So postoperatively, he underwent radiation therapy after about six months recovery. Five years after that, he was started on androgen deprivation therapy for a rising PSA and suspicious pelvic lymph nodes. He had an extra excellent response for three years. However, his most recent records show that his PSA had been trending up. Initially 0.41, it increased to 1.06, and most recently his PSA was 1.54. Well, so it sounds like he is showing the early biochemical escape of the androgen deprivation therapy, but it sounds like there must be more to this story. So what else was ordered and what else should we consider before deciding upon treatment for this patient? Yeah, so this patient received a CT scan and a bone scan. The CT scan showed those pelvic nodes to be stable, but his bone scan showed new lesions in his ribs and in the spine. Of note, he also had a testosterone that showed that he was at a castrate level. His other labs like LDH, hemoglobin, alkaline phosphatase were all normal. Dr. Stratton, can you again describe the the symptoms or absence of those that he was having at this particular junction in his treatment. 
Yeah, so this patient, he is asymptomatic. He had no pain and he had excellent performance status. So he would he would fit the bill for a, a patient with no pain or minimal symptoms with metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. Okay. Well, you mentioned that he'd had a bone scan and a CT scan, but I'm now aware, and so is probably most of the audience, of these emerging next-generation PET scans, and I believe there were several recently approved just for PSMA. So could, could you talk about what scans are available and whether or not there's a role for this type of imaging in this scenario? Yeah, so prostate cancer diagnosis and imaging is going to be changing in the near future with these next generation imaging opportunities. The, the radar three guidelines outline the use of next generation imaging. For this patient, we know that he has new metastasis because his bone scan is positive. So the role for next generation imaging uh, is, um, you know, there's an opportunity for that, although it may not change his his uh, treatment course. In particular, these next generation imaging options that we're talking about are things like Aximan PET scan or uh, PSMA PET scan. Now, these are different than the old uh, sodium fluoride PET scans or even the prostacent scan. These are uh, new next generation imaging that can detect recurrences even at low PSAs like this. Um, so currently we have uh, Axman PET scan that's available widely, but the FDA has approved PSMA PET scan. And so in the near future, we should see that become more and more available. The differences between the uh, Axman PET scan and PSMA PET scan are, are really uh, related to their PSA levels at detection. So um, the Axman or fluciclovine PET has a PSMA or has a PSA cutoff, uh, it's, it's probably going to need to be higher than 0.5 in order to detect metastasis. It's, uh, it's the scan, because of its characteristics, the scan is done shortly after administration of the agent. So there isn't as much of a problem with the agent in the urine. And, uh, and it's a relatively easy to obtain PET scan. With PSMA PET, the level of detection can go to lower PSMA, PSA levels than Aximan, um, but it is a little bit of a longer scan. The radio tracer can be in the urine. So there are, there are differences between the two imaging modalities, uh, but nonetheless, they, they do provide for detection at low PSA levels when the CT scan and the bone scan may not show evidence of disease. Again, in this patient, his bone scan did show new lesions. I think the consensus for most people is, is that that would be sufficient to start them on a next line of treatment. And uh, the, the role for next generation imaging is, is variable. Yeah, and I believe that, as you mentioned, that uh, oxymen or flucyclovine, that is really, you know, currently recommended for patients with PSA recurrence after failed local therapy not necessarily this castration resistant. Some of the PSMA scans that are coming will be used for staging in general, even for newly diagnosed high-risk men. And again, we're still learning about what the value might be 
in somebody who already has, you know, a, a positive bone scan, has the issue that you can already see it on conventional imaging. We're, we're just learning that. So, so it sounds like in this particular case, since you have a positive bone scan, you wouldn't really change your management based on a next generation imaging study currently. So you might defer that at this point. That's right. Yep. Well, let's talk about treatment options then. You mentioned that, you know, he's has minimal symptoms. So he's metastatic. He's castration resistant. He's failing his ADT alone. Uh, would you continue the ADT in this setting? Yeah, we would continue the ADT in all patients who are castration resistant. So that would either be with uh, Lupron or, or uh, Relogalox or Daguerrelex, some agent like that. So the testosterone suppression continues, but then let's talk about what additional treatments could be layered onto that then. So for a patient who has newly diagnosed metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, looking at the AUA guidelines, this patient would be a candidate for abiraterone for enzalutamide or docetaxel. Now, since he's asymptomatic, he's also a candidate for sipulucyl-T. And that, that's specifically for patients who are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. And the definition for uh, minimally symptomatic would be someone who is not requiring narcotic pain medicine for their cancer-related pain. So they can have pain, but they just can't uh, use narcotics as a means to manage their pain. Okay. I know we cover this well in another session, so it, it's just important to mention that if the patient hasn't been offered germline testing, he would be a candidate, as well as potentially somatic testing that could plant the seed for some additional therapies as well. Um, before we, let's say the patient is going to opt for stipulucyl T because he fits that narrow window of opportunity. Um, tell me a little bit about how that's done in, in the office and the logistics of it. And then, then we'll get into a little bit more about some of the side effects. Yeah. So sipulucyl T is an, a, uh, a, a, a cancer vaccine um, based off of antigen presenting cells that have been activated against prostate cancer. So the uh, treatment uh, is after a patient undergoes leukophoresis, their immune cells are then sent and exposed to uh, growth factor stimulation and prostate antigen at the same time. That leads to an activation of the antigen presenting cells. Then three days later, those are given back to patients. So uh, the treatment process is such that Patients get leukophoresis, and then three days later, they come back for the infusion of their own immune cells. That process is repeated uh, two more times. So it's a total of three treatments over six weeks. Okay. So it sounds like you have to work out the logistics in order to really pull this off, but it sounds like it, it's very well done when it can be accomplished and you have a place for them to receive that leukophoresis and then um, timing for them to receive their therapy three days later. So there's some planning, some scheduling, and perhaps navigation behind 
that uh, to get that delivered, but it, it then it's delivered. So let's say that the patient opts for the sipulucil tea and he's going to go through the treatments. What are some of the common side effects that we should be aware of? And then we'll talk a little bit about how you would manage those. Yeah, the most common side effects are really flu-like sim- symptoms that can occur with the infusion. Those are things like fever, chills, headache, or uh, myalgia. Some patients have rigors, and uh, there can be rare side effects of, of sweating or hypertension. So in general, patients tolerate this very well. Is it okay to continue on steroids if you were on a steroid medication during this treatment? Yeah. When you're on steroids for, for instance, replacement therapy for abiraterone, that's that's acceptable. Um, as long as patients aren't on immune suppressant steroid doses. Okay. And then um, tell me about the management. Let's say the patient's undergoing his infusion of the sipulucil tea and he, he runs a fever. What, what would be the advice to the nurses? What kind of standing orders would you want them to know about? Uh, supportive care is the treatment for the majority of side effects from sipulucil tea. Most patients are pre-medicated before their infusion, uh, for instance, with Tylenol or uh, diphenhydramine. And if a patient experiences rigors, you can also uh, pre-medita- pre-med- pre-medicate them with treatments such as Pepsid. So, um, you know, the, the pre-medication we found to be very helpful to prevent some of the side effects for patients receiving sipulucil tea. The infusion rate can also be uh, reduced or, or held uh, shortly uh, whenever patients may experience some of these side effects. Uh, most everyone is able to tolerate their infusion though. Okay. You know, while we're talking about medication side effects, I just wanted to go ahead and let's say the patient opted for abiraterone in this particular moment. What what type of side effects would the physician need to be looking out for in that setting? So the, the nature of abiraterone is, is that it, it prevents steroid synthesis. That can cause an unopposed mineralocorticoid excess and so it's those type of symptoms that we commonly see with abiraterone treatment. Things like hypertension or hypokalemia or lower extremity swelling. If a patient has uh, as diabetes, they sometimes can have di- uh, steroid-induced hyperglycemia. And then finally, patients can experience changes in their liver enzymes. Okay, very good. Well, um, let's go back to the case at hand then. Tell me a little bit about uh, how this patient was treated and, and what happened following that. So this patient opted for sipulucil tea. He received three treatments over six weeks without any side effects. Following his treatment, he had a repeat PSA, and it showed that his PSA had gone up from 1.54 to 1.85. Now, wait a minute. Um, I, you know, with a lot of the treatments that we render, we anticipate, you know, changes in the PSA to go down. Would you be alarmed if the PSA didn't really change much in a patient on this type of therapy? Because sibulucil T is a, is immune therapy, a cancer vaccine, we don't expect that patients' PSAs 
will will respond and go down with subulosal T. In fact, in the impact trial, uh, patients who had an overall survival benefit, most of them didn't experience a change in their PSA. So for patients who are receiving subulosal T, many people don't, um, don't scrutinize the PSA during treatment. And, and patients are expected to know that after treatment, their PSA may be higher. You mentioned that impact trial. And so let's say the patient's going to go through the cipulusal T. What would you expect him? What would be the potential benefit for him in this setting that would allow him to opt into getting this type of treatment? What were the results of that impact trial? Yeah, the impact trials showed an overall survival benefit to the use of cipulusal T. And this was uh, in a group of men who uh, the control arm, they many of them went on to receive cipulosal T. So certainly uh, the, the impact trial showed a signal that this immune therapy is, uh, is a, a beneficial to patients with metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. Okay, so a couple of caveats there. It looks like overall survival advantage is, is evident, um, but it may not initially change PSA or the imaging findings. So you know, it works differently. It works maybe at a different time in, we can't judge too quickly is kind of what I'm hearing. Yeah. From, uh, from a review of the impact trial, it appeared that patients who received cipulosal T at lower levels of PSA or potentially earlier in their disease course had the most benefit. Okay. Well, let's move from cipulosal T. Let's say the patient's uh, then, um, you know, having some progression of his disease. Um, how, how would he be treated next? Well, in this case, the patient opted for abiraterone. So when we, when we have a patient who's had cipulosal T, they would be candidates for the treatment with abiraterone, enzalutamide, or docetaxel after cipulosal T treatment. Okay. So as long as he was asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, he met that opportunity for the cipulosal T. But now that he's progressing and or has developed symptoms, then it sounds like he'd be a candidate for either additional AR-targeted therapy or docetaxel chemotherapy. Um, are there any patients... Uh, who should avoid cipulosal T, even if they meet that minimal symptomatic criteria? Yeah, patients who um, don't have the life expectancy ex uh, to benefit from cipulosal T. So, you know, if we saw that the survival curves split after six months, and so this treatment, you know, we would want to give this as early as possible. Patients who have liver metastasis probably are not going to benefit from subulosal T at that point. Um, people with autoimmune diseases or who have who have a need for high dose steroids, because their immune system is uh, is blunted, we would probably want to avoid subulosal T for them as well. Obviously, patients who have uh, significant symptoms due to their prostate cancer because they may need narcotic pain medicine uh, and they would therefore not qualify as minimally symptomatic, 
you probably want to avoid sipulucyl tea in those patients as well. Okay. Um, so then this patient you said was treated with abiraterone and what kind of, we talked a little about the side effects of that, but why don't you mention those again? And then we'll, we'll kind of talk a little bit more about who might you want to avoid abiraterone in. Yeah. So the, the side effects for abiraterone would be hypertension, hypokalemia, uh, increased liver enzymes, lower extremity swelling, and potentially increased uh, blood sugar. Is If the patient had had docetaxel chemotherapy, would he still be a candidate for abiraterone? He would be. Abiraterone has been shown to benefit patients both before and after docetaxel. Okay. How about you mentioned another treatment, the enzalutamide. Where, where is its window of opportunity? Again, uh, enzalutamide has been shown uh, to be beneficial after docetaxel. And in the PREVAIL trial, enzalutamide pre-chemotherapy was uh, proven to have an overall survival benefit as well. So it sounds like the androgen-targeted therapy of abiraterone and enzalutamide could be used pre- or post-chemotherapy, usually for patients that are symptomatic and progressing in this castration-resistant state. We really didn't talk much about chemotherapy, but talk to me a little bit about the option for docetaxel. Who, who might be a good candidate for that in this setting? Docetaxel would be a good candidate for patients who have a high risk of symptoms from their prostate cancer, those that may have visceral metastasis, specifically liver metastasis, um, patients who uh, have previously received treatment with abiraterone or enzalutamide, they would be a candidate for docetaxel. So at some point, patients are going to re- uh, be eligible for chemotherapy and uh, talking with patients about when they would want to use docetaxel, it, it's, it's definitely part of the sequencing of treatment in patients with uh, advanced prostate cancer. One additional treatment that we really didn't mention here because the case hasn't really evolved to that would be if we had a patient who had bony metastases and was symptomatic but didn't have visceral metastases. Um, Talk to me a little bit about the option of radium. So radium is uh, a radiopharmaceutical that uh, is an infusion that patients receive. They can get this monthly for up to six months. It has been shown to improve in uh, survival in patients with symptomatic uh, bone metastasis and castro-resistant prostate cancer. It's important to note that the definition of symptomatic for radium candidates is different than sipulucyl T. So a patient who has any discomfort in their bones or any other symptoms related to their bone metastasis which could include fatigue, insomnia, uh, lethargy, any of those symptoms are candidate for radium if they're uh, associated with their bone metastasis. Thank you. So I think we're going to wrap this up. Uh, This was a great discussion that kind of took us through that early metastatic castration-resistant patient, somebody that wasn't experiencing symptoms but was progressing through the escape off of the androgen deprivation therapy 
the importance of making sure their testosterone is truly suppressed, continuing their ADT, and then opening up the options for them that include that opportunity for immunotherapy in the minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic patient, and then taking them through various forms of treatment as they progress and become more symptomatic. I'd certainly like to thank the audience and really appreciate Dr. Stratton's insight on this. Um, for more information on this topic, as well as some of the other cases, please visit auanet.org university. Thank you very much. Well, I'd like to welcome everybody to the evolving landscape of advanced prostate cancer treatment, a guidelines and case-based discussion. Uh, this is case study number four. And we'll, what we'll do, be doing uh, today is talking about advanced metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, and specifically discussing the role of docetaxel and radium-223 in this setting. I'm your host, uh, Dr. David Girard. I'm an associate professor um, at the uh, Carbone Cancer Center, uh, and um, also a uh, the vice chair of the Department of Urology. It's a real pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Deborah Kay today. Uh, Dr. Kay is a, an assistant professor of surgery division of urology at Duke University. And what we'll plan to do today is uh, talk some about uh, these two components of prostate cancer management. Uh, as urologists, so we don't use these too frequently, but uh, as part of a, an advanced prostate cancer care clinic, it's important to be aware of their use uh, and side effects. And certainly this is something that uh, we all uh, are cognizant that is uh, on the, uh, the boards as well. So it's an important piece of information uh, for us to ha have. So Dr. K, uh, welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm looking forward to the discussion. So uh, we'll provide a, a little bit of an overview of the case history and start with that. Uh, perhaps you'd like to outline uh, this, Dr. K. Yeah, sure. So Mr. C is a 71-year-old gentleman um, with a history of coronary artery disease um, and prior MI. Um, and he currently has advanced um, prostate cancer, but his prostate cancer was initially diagnosed um, about eight years ago. Um, he was diagnosed when he had a PSA of 9.7 um, during his annual physical, um, and he underwent a prostatectomy at that time. Um, he had Gleason 4 plus 4, or grade group 4 disease, prostate adenocarcinoma, um, with a path being PT3A N0, um, and he had a, a post-operative PSA that was undetectable. <coughs> um, after about two and a half years, um, he did have biochemical recurrence um, and underwent salvage XRT. Um, his pre-XRT PSA was um, 1.2, and then uh, it, his PSA went to undetectable um, with six months being on androgen deprivation therapy. Um, in 18 months, uh, his PSA increased um, to about 4.7. Um, his testosterone was within normal levels at this time. <coughs> He had conventional imaging um, that showed bone metastases in multiple vertebral bodies um, and the lev left seventh rib. 
so this time he was started on androgen deprivation therapy and abiraterone um, for metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer um, and his PSA natured at 0.05. Um, however, about 18 months later, um, his PSA was 6.8. Uh, so now he um, has metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer um, in uh, post-abiraterone. Uh, so, Dr. K, we have a patient uh, with a rising PSA, uh, uh, castration-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, he's now had a fairly average response to his abiraterone, uh, responded for 18 months, had a good response. And what additional tests should we be uh, considering at the present time? Um, so, the first thing you want to do is just repeat your PSA to confirm an elevation. Um, the next, you want to check a serum testosterone um, once again to confirm uh, that that we're in a that he's castrate resistant um, or not, um, and then do restaging scans um, with a bone scan and a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis. At this point, you know a lot of people ask: Is is PET scan um, necessary? Um, and and it's unlikely to change management um, in this post salvage radiotherapy setting, um, given our current data. Um, we also want to consider if a, um, an MRI, if a patient has extreme back pain or neurologic symptoms. Um, and then very importantly um, in this space is germline and somatic gen genetic testing um, and testing for microsatellite instability or MC MSI um, testing on tumor tissue. Um, and that's if this already hasn't been performed. Those are important, important components in this modern era with regard to uh, directing therapy. So uh, should the patient, uh, when we're thinking about a biopsy uh, in the setting of uh, castrate level of te testosterone, uh, is it absolutely necessary or um, uh, perhaps you could expand a little bit on this issue? So in, in a setting, um, biopsy really isn't required in this setting. Um, so metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer is diagnosed by progression on imaging or rising PSA. Um, in the setting of a castrate level of testosterone. Um, and so if you have those factors, then, then we do, you don't need to get a biopsy. However, um, there are certain factors where you may want to consider biopsy, um, and that's uh, with progression of disease um, that doesn't progress in a typical pattern, um, or in a patient who has a very low PSA, um, which is really out of proportion um, to the degree of progression, you may want to consider getting a biopsy in, in those cases. Um, and then the last case is if the tissue is really easily accessible um, and, and needed for somatic testing, um, then I generally get a biopsy. So when you're thinking about atypical progression, uh, things that we might want to consider, uh, you know, visceral disease, especially a big liver metastases, uh, aspects like that uh, would be more important to consider a biopsy. Very good. So uh, what are the remaining treatment options uh, that we might consider uh, to prolong life in this scenario? And in, in terms of uh, what factors you know, can we differentiate these treatments uh, from a physician's perspective? So what do we want to think about uh, as the doctor? Um, yeah, so there are a lot of different things um, that, that we should be thinking about. So um, prior therapy, so you want to avoid um, androgen receptor targeted agents um, after a prior androgen receptor targeted agent. And the data is pretty clear on that uh, from multiple studies. Um, 
you usually give um, cabazitaxel after docetaxel, um, not usually beforehand. Um, clinical features of the patient are really important. So if the patient's symptomatic versus asymptomatic. Um, the location, as you spoke about previously, um, and degree of metastatic disease. So um, do they only have bony mets or do they have visceral mets? Um, or do they have rapidly progressive disease um, causing significant symptoms? Going along with this is the performance status of the patient. Um, so we're much more likely to give certain agents um, if a patient has good performance status um, over, over not, especially if we want to be really aggressive. Um, and then um, <coughs> requirement to collaborate with other subspecialties versus if we can give it um, independently. Um, and that's going to be different if, you know, kind of depending on what setting, what practice setting we're in, um, as well as our subspecialty. Um, and then uh, requirement for prior authorization, um, you know, while, while it shouldn't really, um, you know, change our, our management of patients, um, the, the fact of the matter is, is it can um, if, we, if we aren't able to get um, some prior authorization. And you talked about uh, performance status, and and clearly, if if this was a situation where the patient was uh, confined to the bed, prob probably would not do very well with uh, a chemotherapy option. Uh, radium two two three though uh, may may be a possibility, but we can certainly discuss that a little bit more. So, what about uh, factors that uh, when you're thinking about um, differentiating therapies, you know, what kinds of concerns or are aspects from a patient's perspective uh, they come into play? Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, so, you know, patients have a lot of different um, things that, that they desire and, and things that we have to think about as physicians. So um, how much is a patient going to have to pay in terms of copay or out-of-pocket costs? Um, and that can really vary by um, a patient's insurance status. Um, uh, if, the, if the medication is oral versus infusion therapy, and, and some patients differ in terms of um, their preferences uh, for oral versus infusion. Um, really, in, in terms of the pandemic, especially, um, concerns about immunosuppression. Um, and that can be related to the pandemic or just where the patient lives or, or just generally about immunosuppression. Um, <coughs> Um, some patients have um, huge concerns about hair loss um, versus, you know, no hair loss. Um, expected effect on symptoms and, and how quickly um, they're going to, the medication is going to impact their symptoms. Um, really, uh, how much time patients have to take away from work or if therapies can give, be given while they're um, still working. Um, is, is often really important. Um, if they can participate um, in family activities or other leisure activities, or is the therapy just going to totally um, kind of wipe them out with the side effects? <coughs> that really kind of defers on, on the patient and kind of what their, what their goals of care are. Um, some patients have um, upcoming events that they want to um, attend or participate in um, that they're concerned about missing. Um, and, and that can kind of change um, what kind of treatment recommendations we have. Um, and in the, the experience of um, prior experiences of chemotherapy in friends or family, um, you know, even just the word chemotherapy can, you know, bring up a reaction in patients. Um, so, you know, 
whether or not we differentiate those factors or just how we explain them, um, you know, makes a big difference in terms of our treatment decision making. Um, and the last one is kind of <coughs> uh, travel distance to therapy. Um, so kind of depending on how far someone has to travel in order to get their therapy, um, that can make a big difference in them um, being able to receive kind of the, the course of treatment that we recommend um, and, and therefore the, if we really should be making those treatment recommendations. Yeah, and certainly uh, does Taxol is given every three weeks uh, uh, for a prolonged period of time, uh, which may create issues from, from a travel standpoint and, and certainly follow-up. Well, let's talk a little bit uh, about uh, the, this patient uh, and the treatment options. So uh, again, to reiterate, this patient has had um, ADT uh, and is placed on abiraterone, now has a rising PSA, uh, had been uh, diagnosed with castration-resistant metastatic prostate cancer. Uh, so what are uh, some uh, uh, options we might want to consider? And, and is this patient symptomatic at the present time as well? Yeah, so... Um... This patient, as you said, who's symptomatic, progressive, metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer with bone-only metastases, if we're able to, um, the best possible option for this patient um, would be radium-223. Um, and, and sometimes we, you know, not everyone can give radium-223, um, but this would, um, this would provide kind of the best therapy for this patient at this time. Uh, other options uh, that we want to consider uh, as far as the, the list, um, you know, you mentioned briefly uh, following with another uh, androgen uh, signaling inhibitor, such as enzalutamide, obviously the data doesn't really uh, suggest that they would have a, a profound response, uh, but it is used in, in some situations. Uh, what about, uh, is there a role for, for uh, ciplocil T uh, in this patient? Yeah, there's no role for this patient because they have um, symptomatic disease. Um, CYPT is generally used in, in patients who are asymptomatic, um, and it's it's usually used, you know, in patients kind of earlier on um, in their course um, of advanced prostate cancer, or metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer. And uh, other options might uh, be to consider platinum doublet therapy. Again, this would be more for atypical variants uh, that would be found on the biopsy. Uh, you mentioned cabazitaxel, which uh, does have uh, some uh, decreased uh, side effects, uh, uh, at least from the standpoint of comparing it to uh, docetaxel, which uh, is currently being used in some trials uh, in this space, and, and then radium-223. So uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about uh, radium-223 and focus down on that for a minute. Um, what what uh, kinds of uh, aspects um, do you think about uh, when using this before chemotherapy? Yeah, so um, radium-223, um, you know, can is, is nice because it can be used before or after chemotherapy. It's FDA approved um, in, in both settings um, for patients who do not have visceral metastases. So, that, so that's an important point. It's really bone-only metastases. Um, the the important point to consider with with radium two two three and it's um, 
is that it does require a partnership um, between the treating physician and nuclear medicine um, or radiation oncology, um, kind of depending on, on where your practice is. <coughs> and in some settings, um, you know, for us as providers, it, that can almost make it easier if you have those relationships because they, you know, once you prescribe it, they kind of go over um, explaining, you know, a lot of the particulars and, and, and the consenting process. Um, but, but it really does require a strong partnership um, between those groups. Um, for this patient um, in the pre-chemotherapy setting, um, so, so obviously an, another um, potential option would be docetaxel in this setting. Um, but in, in the pre-chemotherapy study, we're more likely to be able to administer all six doses, so the complete course um, of, of radium-223. Um, and then, you know, while there are some biases um, potentially, um, you know, in, in some of the studies, um, it shows that asymptomatic patients may have greater benefit um, over patients who are symptomatic. Um, so, so treating patients earlier with this agent um, may produce, um, you know, more improved uh, or better overall survival. Um, but once again, there, there are potentially some biases um, with some of that data. So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, how this patient uh, responded uh, to radium-223 and, and also a little bit about the side effects uh, that uh, they might potentially expect. Um, yeah, so this uh, patient received um, six cycles, so the complete course of radium, um, and he had um, improvement in his back pain after cycle two. So um, sometimes, in, oftentimes, these patients have, you know, good response after kind of very early um, d doses. Um, he tolerated it well. Um, one of the kind of major side effects of the treatment are, are fatigue and, and some nausea. Um, he didn't have any of those. Um, he didn't have any hair loss. Um, he, he had a CBC after completing treatment um, with mild anemia. So another side effect um, can be a, a, a cytopenia. Um, and this patient didn't have any other um, evidence of a cytopenia. <coughs> Um, three months after completing radium, um, however, he presented with some fatigue, um, but he was otherwise remained active. So it uh, sounds like uh, he may be um, potentially need further evaluation. And it looks like uh, from his, his course, uh, a PSA was, was obtained at this point. Um, where, what is going on with this patient now after his uh, radium treatment? Yeah, so um, PSA was 37.3, so it would um, signify that he had disease progression. Um, so we did obtain another CT and bone scan um, for staging, um, and that demonstrated progression in the left femur, um, pelvic lymph nodes, and he had several small pulmonary lar lesions. Um, largest was about one centimeter. Um, so as we said, we, um, it shows that he is symptomatic and, and he's progressing um, on radium-223 and still has metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. 
So what, uh, what about treatment options at this point? Uh, and he's now received abiraterone uh, radium, obviously has been on androgen deprivation therapy the whole time, which is, is an important component uh, of their therapy that is continued uh, throughout uh, their, their lifespan. Uh, talk a little bit uh, about options. Yeah, so we could do, um, once again, another AR-targeted um, agent, um, so enzalutamide, but once again, as we said, that's not the best option um, because he's already had it. Um, docetaxel, um, we could give cabazitaxel. Um, it, this is usually given after docetaxel, um, so if he progresses on docetaxel, then he would give cabazitaxel. Um, uh, you could consider um, pembrolizumab, um, but that's only if the patient has um, um, MSI high, so micro, a microsatellite instability high. Um, Elaparib, um, you can give with a DNA, DNA, DNA damage repair mutation um, or um, rucaparib, um, and that's usually given after an AR agent um, and taxane. Um, so the important part um, is that we really need um, genetic testing to, to help guide this space. So this patient is still chemo naive, and it would, it would appear that we're really heading in that direction, uh, given the progression of his disease. Um, and it's a fairly rapid progression of his disease. Uh, as far as side effects associated with uh, docetaxel, um, uh, you know, obviously, there can be fatigue, nail changes, uh, they get a neuropathy uh, that can be associated with this. Um, there are also uh, uh, febrile neutropenia, but certainly, uh, and we talk a bit more about this uh, treatment with this drug in, in one of our uh, other podcasts, but uh, obviously, uh, with uh, uh, support, uh, these patients do uh, well from a febrile neutropenia standpoint. Uh, I do know our medical oncologists will often recommend Ritalin to help with fatigue, uh, good nail care, and, and from the neuropathy standpoint, uh, they can use cold stockings to actually help uh, minimize uh, issues uh, from that standpoint. So uh, what other factors, you know, when we think about the other options uh, uh, that might be available for these patients, we talked a little bit about the fact that, uh, you know, sequ sequencing uh, androgen receptor targeted agents uh, uh, can be effective, uh, but uh, immediately used after one another, uh, less effective. Um, so that may not be the best option here. Uh, what other um, what other components might we want to think about? Yeah, so the, um, you know, I, I think, as you said, that sequencing AR-targeted agents um, is rarely effective, and and it, it it's done frequently, um, but but the data shows that that it isn't effective, and that is even if it's separated by chemotherapy. So, um, you know, when you get kind of to those later options, um, there are fewer options. Um, but you know, unfortunately, the, the the data just doesn't support it. Talk about those um, preferences. Really, novel mechanisms of action are key um, in choosing the next treatment, and so. Once again, just always ensuring that there's germline and somatic testing um, and, and that, that they're completed to really understand. Um, and, and it has to be somewhat up to date, right? Because these tumors can change and they can change their, their behavior um, as well as their mutation status. Um, so, you know, 
is the initial prostatectomy specimen may not be the best place for us to get some of these tissues. So especially in tumors that aren't um, behaving like we think that they should behave, um, you know, thinking about potentially redoing um, some of that germline and somatic testing, um, or sorry, the tissue tumor testing, um, if we haven't done it for a while, um, can, can potentially be beneficial. Well, great. So the uh, uh, thanks, uh, everybody, for your attention. Again, we had an opportunity to review radium-223 as well as uh, docetaxel chemotherapy in this patient with symptomatic uh, metastatic uh, castration-resistant prostate cancer. This is a rapidly evolving field, and, and clearly there are new options that are, are evolving. Uh, and we talk a little bit later in one of our other uh, podcasts about lutetium, uh, which is a newer approach. I'd like to thank everybody. And uh, for more information, uh, please visit auanet.org backslash university. Uh, I'm uh, Dr. David Gerard, And uh, again, uh, thanks for your